There's no question a lot is at stake in this year's election at all levels of government. We here at the Topeka Capital Journal are doing our part to share the perspectives of those running for elected positions in Kansas. My name is India Yarbrough, and I'm a reporter for the Capital Journal. Over the next few weeks, leading up to the November 3rd general election, our reporters will be interviewing candidates running for local, state, and national offices. We'll be asking them questions about their platforms and priorities, and having conversations about what this year's election means to Kansans. We hope you enjoy listening to our Election 2020 podcast series. today with Shawnee County District Attorney Mike Kage. He is running for re-election this year and faces a challenge in the November 3rd general election from Joshua Luttrell, a Democrat. Kage, who is running as a Republican, has told the Capitol Journal previously that his priorities include reducing violent crime in Shawnee County and combating human trafficking. Mike, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, India. It's great to be here. Great. Uh, well, to start off, could you explain why you decided to run for re-election this year? Yeah, absolutely. I am very fulfilled uh, by the position of district attorney, and I can't imagine doing anything else, quite honestly. Uh, Our responsibility is to seek the truth and serve justice and serve our community and serve, uh, you know, our our friends and neighbors. Uh, And I find that to be uh, both very challenging, uh, but also very rewarding at the same time. Great. Um, Well, I want to hone in on a a couple of your priorities. Uh, I remember when we have spoken previously, of course, you've talked about reducing that violent crime and and combating human trafficking. um, And uh, uh, those are kind of important issues that you hope to address. Uh, I want to start with violent crime. Um, Of course, you have helped shape the Strategies Against Violence Everywhere initiative that was announced this year by the Topeka Center for Peace and Justice. And you've secured money in the DA's budget for a project manager position that would oversee the SAVE initiative. Uh, But another of your attempts to reduce violent crime locally has been to lobby the legislature to increase the penalty for felons caught illegally carrying a firearm. Um, Could you explain why you stand by that strategy? And and more broadly speaking, uh, do you think increasing criminal penalties reduces crime? Well, uh, let me answer the second part of that first. I think from a very common sense perspective, if somebody is engaging in uh, violent behavior uh, and they have shown a tendency to do that and we don't have sufficient rehabilitative measures available to, uh, to really protect the community uh, from that behavior, then yes, absolutely. Uh, that's what, uh, you know, that, 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 that's why you would incarcerate that individual at that point. Uh, we have a duty to promote public safety and, and certainly to protect the community from anyone who is engaging in uh, behaviors uh, that tend to harm uh, others, right? So uh, the penalty for felon in possession of a firearm right now in the state of Kansas, uh, it's, it's not very substantial. Uh, it's classified as a level eight non-person felony. And essentially what that means is anyone, uh, we're talking about someone who possesses a firearm illegally, okay? So right off the bat, clearly this person it does not respect the law. They're not following the law. Uh, and it has been my experience that people uh, that uh, carry these firearms illegally are much more likely to use them. And we see that. You know, we see that when we're investigating homicides, when we're investigating uh, shootings and attempted murders and so on, uh, that the parties involved, the ones who were doing the shooting, were possessing firearms illegally. And so it stands to reason that if you can identify some of these individuals uh, while they are in our community possessing, again, illegally, um, 
that they should be held accountable for that and that uh, sometimes the answer will be incarceration for these individuals. Uh, but the law as it's written right now just simply doesn't allow for that. Um, you have to have either an A or B criminal history, which are the, the two most severe categories of criminal history in the state of Kansas, to even be presumptive prison uh, for this level of offense. Conversely, um, uh, the federal authorities have a lot of penalties at their disposal. And so essentially what ends up happening is when we identify somebody who uh, clearly has shown a pattern of violence and they, um, they're possessing a firearm illegally, and that's the only charge they're being held on uh, or being uh, investigated for at the moment, oftentimes the federal authorities will reach out or will reach out to them and uh, they will adopt that case. Because again, uh, we have a duty to uh, promote public safety and protect the community from people that would uh, do it harm. And so um, my pitch to the legislature is not all of these cases can be taken by the federal, federal authorities, right? They just, they don't have the time to prosecute all of them. And uh, it's, it's my opinion, uh, again, that these people have demonstrated a propensity to commit violence in our community and that those are the folks that we are going to want to um, uh, hold accountable in a way that involves incarceration. And so uh, my plea to them was to simply make it a presumptive uh, prison offense. And that was uh, proposal included uh, what's called a special rule. Um, so not changing the severity level of the offense itself, but just attaching what's called a special rule um, to a felony conviction, which says that the court does have the authority to send somebody to prison. So they'd be presumptive prison then, and the court could still depart, uh, as the court often does uh, when someone is presumptive prison, if there are substantial and compelling reasons um, for that individual not to be incarcerated, um, the court can always depart to probation. But just to have that tool uh, to be able to um, use that to, uh, you know, one more tool to help protect the community from people who are engaging in violent behavior. Okay. Um, and, and shifting over to combating human trafficking, um, which is another of your priorities. Could, could you explain why that is such an important issue to you and what you plan to do moving forward to really address that? Absolutely. So human trafficking, you know, uh, when I was running in 2016, uh, my, uh, my knowledge base of, of human trafficking was just not very extensive. Uh, and it's not something that I think law enforcement uh, in our community and, and really in our state had traditionally focused on. And we still have a long ways to go. Uh, in that area, and that that'll kind of uh, inform the the last part of my answer. And uh, I became aware of the issues that our community was facing related to human trafficking by dealing with advocates, uh, by by talking to people who uh, encountered these women and these girls uh, day to day and saw the conditions that they were living in and heard their stories. Uh, just the most painful, traumatic. Uh, scenarios you can imagine. Uh, and it's really heartbreaking uh, to think about and uh, to know that uh, these are victims in our community that um, don't really have uh, a means of obtaining justice, right? At least in, in the criminal sense, unless law enforcement is engaged in that process. But there's so many factors that complicate that. Uh, the development of a criminal investigation related to human trafficking. If you look at uh, victims of, for example, domestic violence, 
um, you know, uh, they can develop uh, certainly traumatic response and a very complex response uh, and relationship uh, in relation to their abuser, right? So they can become dependent on their abuser. They could uh, certainly express feelings of affection for their abuser, even though this person is hurting them. Uh, and the, you know, offender who engages in that violent behavior certainly will do things to uh, demean their victim and lower their self-esteem and really try and reinforce the idea that, um, you know, no one else would want you but me and uh, I'm the only one that can look out for you and provide for you. And, you know, they try and isolate and control those activities. And we're talking about domestic violence, right? So that issue is complicated uh, in, enough by itself. And now look at a victim of uh, sexual trauma. You know, look at uh, victims of rape, for example. Um, they're they're going to have all sorts of uh, just neurobiological uh, traumatic injuries as a result of, of what they've suffered. And I'm talking about, in this case, someone who theoretically has been raped once, right? That's, I mean, that's more than enough to change somebody for their entire life and to affect everything that they do and how they see the world around them, how they form and develop relationships, uh, and how they respond to stressful situations, right? Now imagine uh, a victim of human trafficking who, on average, is being raped five to ten times a day. Compound all of that trauma, stack it on top of each other, and then consider, too, that the person who is trafficking them will use violence and threats of violence and uh, sometimes uh, even forced uh, ingestion of illegal street drugs. You know, anything that they can do to discredit, put down, and control their victim. And uh, so, yeah, it's extremely complex, the nature of the problem. Um, the advocates have been doing their part uh, here in our community, and I have seen that borne out. Uh, and I was eager, uh, as I took over in 2017, I was eager to see law enforcement kind of step up and join that fight. And, you know, we have, we have had some human trafficking cases, uh, and the, the penalties in the state of Kansas for someone who who does this uh, and traffics uh, another human being are pretty substantial. And uh, so, for example, I think the last uh, the last man that we prosecuted for human trafficking received, I want to say, 38 years in prison. So it's, it's a serious crime with serious penalties, as it should be, uh, because you're really destroying people's lives. Uh, you're taking their lives from them, even though they're still, you know, they're still there. Uh, you're taking, certainly taking away their sense of self and, you know, their identity. And uh, so I was eager to see law enforcement do more. And uh, there were there were a couple different groups um, that I've worked with. Um, there was a group called uh, Freedom Now uh, that was formed um, kind of uh, in conjunction with the rescue mission. Barry Faker was, was leading the charge on that. And it brought together a really broad coalition uh, of community stakeholders. Um, there were representatives from law enforcement, from the medical field, the military was there, uh, the media was represented, uh, certainly the advocates were there. 
enforce really everybody. And it was very encouraging to see that. And the idea was, let's educate ourselves on the nature of this problem. Let's do a deep dive into what our community is facing right now in terms of human trafficking and how we can best uh, fight back and uh, not just hold the you know offenders accountable, because that's my responsibility, we'll do that, but provide support uh, systems and networks uh, for the victims of human trafficking, uh, because that's equally important, right? And, um, you know, I was involved in that group for about two years, uh, and there were some good things that came out of it. I think some public awareness, public education pieces. Um, but what I was finding is that law enforcement um, at the local level is just not built for these types of investigations because they're very time intensive. Uh, they're very long term. Uh, and you have to... You know, there's a danger in um, trying to pull a victim, as counterintuitive as this sounds and difficult for me to say, there's a danger in trying to pull a, a victim of human trafficking out of uh, their situation before they're ready to actually um, leave that situation. Uh, you know, as silly as it sounds. Um you have to really work to earn their trust, and that's what the advocates do, you know, and they do that by building a relationship and by helping them out and showing them, you know, human empathy and, and kindness and, and compassion for what they're dealing with and, and really just get them to develop a trusting relationship. But even then, if you take somebody who is ready and willing to cooperate, um, you know, it's not like they've been taking notes about everything that's been done to them and, you know, where did this happen? What time did it happen? Who was the guy? You know, all these things are, are going to be overwhelming and, and are overwhelming for these victims uh, when law enforcement tries to um, interview them. You know, once they finally make it to that place where they're ready to talk to law enforcement, uh, most of them uh, just, when they get to that point, they just want out and they want to move on. But sometimes you'll find somebody who is willing to talk and, uh, and again, that's important because we need that in order to hold their abuser accountable, right? Because what we know about human trafficking, just like we know about domestic violence, uh, the offender will just go and find somebody new, you know? Um, in human trafficking, it's about power, it's about control, and it's about a source of income. This is how they make their living. And um, if they lose... Uh, if they lose one of their victims, they'll just they'll go and recruit another. And so, um, you know, having seen this play out and still not being satisfied with where we're at as a law enforcement community in terms of um, tracking down and holding accountable the perpetrators of human trafficking in our community, uh, through a conversation with um, one of our victim advocates, uh, they put me in touch with the Denver District Attorney's Office. And the Denver DA's office has a program um, where they investigate and prosecute their own human trafficking cases. And that's really unique. Um, most prosecution offices don't investigate their own cases and then prosecute them. And there, there are a number of reasons why you wouldn't do that. Um, but I talked to them and I heard what they were doing. I heard how, how they were constructing their cases uh, and really how they started and where they are today. And it was very encouraging to me. And essentially they said, you know, after talking to you, Mike, uh, 
Topeka is really not that far behind where we are today. You guys are really kind of, you guys are farther ahead than we were when we started our program. And essentially what happened in Denver is they started their program with a single investigator, and now they have multiple investigators and multiple attorneys assigned to it. And once they started generating the cases and prosecuting them uh, and getting you know positive outcomes, the Denver Police Department, which had no human trafficking investigators at all, reached out to them and said, hey, you're making us look bad. What do we need to do in order to you know carry our weight? And so now they have a full unit in the Denver Police Department today that investigates human trafficking specifically. So that's great. I mean, it's great to hear that it can be done uh, in a very um, productive and, and obviously successful way uh, in another place. So, you know, Denver, right, capital city of Colorado. Here we are in Topeka, so why not here? And so I worked with the advocates to uh, develop support for the idea that I would create a human trafficking investigator position within my office. And uh, they were gracious enough to support it. They were all for it. And I presented that idea to the Board of County Commissioners, and they approved it. And so now uh, we have funding specifically for a human trafficking investigator, and um, I will be hiring that person before the end of this year so they can start work. And it's my hope uh, that we're going to be able to kind of build something similar to what uh, Denver has done. Uh, you know, certainly there's a difference in size uh, between those two communities. So I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that it's going to be exactly the same. Um, but I think the program uh, is successful. And the, one of the reasons why is that it's victim-centered and it's trauma-informed, but it's not entirely resting on the the memory, the recollection of the victim, right? They don't just say, well, this is on you. You have to make this happen. And it's a really interesting process. Um, so as the district attorney, I have the legal authority to issue what's called, um, well, to open what's called an inquisition, uh, which is an investigation that really takes place on paper and to issue a number of subpoenas underneath that inquisition. And in doing so, I can uh, collect records from businesses uh, like hotels, um, you know, uh, the bus, the train, you know, any any airline, anything like that. And when you do that and you're looking at bank records too, you can start to form a picture on paper for how money is being made and where the victim has been, where they've been moved. You know, you can look at hotel records from three months ago and see that they were here in this place. And, um, you know, while you're doing that, you start to construct really the outline of what the case is going to be. And then when that victim is ready to cooperate and, and step out of their situation, um, it's so much easier to build a case because it's really just kind of laid out already. And you just kind of need them to, to fill in a couple gaps. Uh, and so, um, I'm very encouraged by that idea, and I'm um, looking forward to uh, getting that person on board and starting our own version of this program. Gotcha. Um, 
Well, and my next question, um, you know, your opponent, Joshua Luttrell, has been critical of your handling of victim services and your office's use of grand juries to decide whether to file charges. Um, so I want to ask you about those. Um, you know, how would you defend your handling of victim services? Is there an aspect to that that many people don't see? Well, I don't particularly feel the need to defend our handling of victim services, um, but uh, you know what I would say is that I have expanded um, our victim services since I took over, and I continue to uh, I intend to continue building on that. You know, it's important to me that we have um, that all of our victims are very comfortable, um, and you know, as as best they can be, because it's it's a difficult experience, you know, for anyone, no matter what the crime is. Uh, and I speak from personal experience, you know, I, I was a victim of crime before, um, I became a prosecutor. Uh, I have loved ones, um, you know, people that are very close to me that were also victims of crime. So I understand what that's like to come in and not really know what's going to happen and really have no understanding for what the system is going to do for you or not do for you. And so, um, what we've done really is focus on creating a culture of, uh, compassion and, and empathy. And I've hired people in those positions that demonstrate those qualities, uh, that genuinely have a, have a heart for the victims that we're serving. And we serve them with, uh, with dignity. Um, and we do everything we can to help them understand, um, both what the system looks like how it, and how it's going to operate, but also some of the limitations that the system has, right? Um, our system of criminal justice is the best in the world. Um, and that, but that does not mean that it's, it's perfect. It's, it's just not, you know, any system designed by human beings right, is subject to imperfection because the last time I checked, none of us are exactly perfect. And so there's always room for growth and there's always room to do better. And uh, that's what I tell my staff. And that's that's what we try and do every day. And that's really, I, I believe, what we've done since I took over is uh, improve every day and try and find policies and practices where we can get better because there's always going to be something. There's always going to be, you know, another office like the Denver DA's office that has a program and Okay, well that that sounds great. Let's do that here. You know, that's that's an example of looking to better yourself and 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 driving that growth. Um it's also important to me that uh you know, we have some Spanish speaking uh victims who are not fluent in English, really have a hard time communicating. And um I have uh fluent and native speakers on staff including uh in that unit uh because um communication is key to that process and helping them understand what what we're dealing with what they can expect and really uh, how this case is going to move forward so um you know i i would honestly i would i would challenge that idea uh that we have not uh that we've been anything but um understanding supportive and and compassionate um this is why we're here okay uh, this is why I became a prosecutor is to serve victims. And I guarantee you that's what the people in my office feel uh, because we've had those conversations and they're very passionate about their work. And I can tell you, um, you know, I, 
to this day, I, I, I don't consider myself to be um, much of a public speaker, right? But if you put me in a courtroom and I'm advocating for a victim, uh, it is a transformative process for me. And it's very empowering um, to know that you are there on their behalf to advocate for them, to seek justice for them. Uh, that's really the whole point of being a prosecutor. And, um, you know, that's, that's something really that only a prosecutor would know. Gotcha. Um, and then looking at grand juries, um, could you explain why your offices use it, uses grand juries? Um, you know, do you find them useful in some cases? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of questions about the grand jury because people, uh, people just don't really know. I wrote, uh, an opinion piece, uh, that was published in the Capitol Journal in 2017, kind of laying out the process. This is what the grand jury does. This is what it looks like. This is why we use it. And I'd encourage people to go and look that up. Um, but while we're here, um, I'll, I'll touch on a couple points. Uh, I think some people believe, uh, because they've been misinformed, um, that the grand jury is a replacement for a pettit jury. So uh, if somebody goes in front of a grand jury and is indicted, then they're not going to have a jury trial. And that's just completely false. Uh, they're two entirely different processes. The way a case gets charged um, under Kansas law can be one of two ways. Either A, one of my attorneys or myself can review the case that's been referred to us by law enforcement and make a charging decision on our own and file charges by way of what's called a complaint. Or B, we can take that same information and present it to a panel of citizens from our community. You could call it a citizen review board if you want to. I know there's a lot of conversation about that. That's essentially what a grand jury is. People uh, want to talk about transparency. I want to be as transparent as it can be. And it doesn't get any more transparent than bringing a case that's been referred to us to a panel of our citizens, right? These are, these are not attorneys. These are, not, these are uh, ordinary citizens, uh, our friends and neighbors who live all over the community. And uh, they get called in to serve on a grand jury, and they are the ones that make those decisions. In fact, I'm glad you brought this up because I just met a man uh, last week as I was walking out of a coffee shop, I met him and he told me he had served on one of our grand juries and he wanted to tell me how great the process was, how much he enjoyed doing it because they were the ones driving the process. The grand jury is an investigative body. They have legal authority to subpoena records. They have legal authority to uh, bring in witnesses and ask them questions. Okay. So it affords all sorts of um, flexibility and investment uh, directly from the community that the normal charging process simply does not allow for. It just doesn't because at the end of the day, you know, we want our actions and our decisions to directly reflect the wishes of the community that we serve. And there is no better way to do that than actually have the community that we are serving tell us which cases to pursue and which ones not. And they've done both. You know, they've filed uh, cases, they've dismissed other cases, they've added charges, they've dropped charges. That's how you know it's working. And that's 
that's the beauty of the grand jury system. It really serves, um, I like to say, as kind of the collective uh, conscience of our community. Okay. And how often do you tend to use that um, strategy or, or method? Yeah. So, um, again, you know, there's some misinformation out there that says that we primarily use the grand jury, and that's that's just false. It's simply false. Um, I would say, on average, one out of three cases may go to the grand jury. Um, but in a year like this year, we haven't impaneled uh, a grand jury at all this year. Uh, we had one last year that kind of finished up earlier this year, but we haven't brought it back. Uh, so everything that we've done uh, in the year of COVID has been by uh, by way of complaint, you know. And um, so that's, that's kind of the process. Um, the one out of three cases, if I could talk about that for a second – we used to, um, well, we, we tracked what would happen at a preliminary hearing, right? If we file a complaint, um, we're going to have a preliminary hearing. We're going to show up. We're going to subpoena witnesses. Um, and then that hearing may or may not go. And what we found is that three out of four times the preliminary hearing did not happen because we would show up with our subpoenaed witnesses and the defense would tell us, well, my client doesn't want a hearing, so we're going to waive, right? Which they can do um, if we agree to waive as well. And so what ended up happening is all these prelims would get set and none of them were going. Um, and the ones that, well, three out of four were going. The ones that were not going were low-level presumptive probation offenses with law enforcement witnesses. So things like... Uh, drug possession, right? Uh, a status offense, like an offender registration case. These are the ones that would not go to preliminary hearing because both parties in the court knew you're not really going to get anything out of this hearing. Um, the officer is going to show up. He's going to testify. He's going to say what he did. The judge is going to make a finding of probable cause. So there's really no point in, in doing it. And so what we've done is, um, and this is the change that, that I made, uh, when I took over, we now send those cases that would have been waivers, we send them to the grand jury. And for all the other cases that go to prelim, I have instructed my prosecutors not to accept a waiver of that preliminary hearing. And that's something that I also changed. So, you know, before, if defense wanted to waive, the hearing just didn't happen. But what I've told my prosecutors is if we've subpoenaed witnesses and we're showing up for a preliminary hearing, that hearing is going to go, you're going to present your evidence and the judge is going to make their finding. Uh, and there's a number of reasons why we do that. Uh, first and foremost, um, it gives both parties, including the defendant and the court, a really good idea for what the evidence in the case would be in a trial setting. And it also gives, uh, the parties an opportunity to really evaluate, uh, the witnesses that are in particular to that case. And again, the cases that just have law enforcement witnesses, there's no there's no incentive there. There's no motive there to do that preliminary hearing. So those would be waivers in the past. But now those are the ones that, apart from this year, would be going to the grand jury. And um, going back to that gentleman I met, um, he enjoyed, he said his favorite part was the deliberations because the witnesses in there, the attorney's in there asking questions. The grand jury asks questions of the witness, and then everyone has to leave except for the grand jurors, right? Just like in a jury trial, they deliberate. They discuss. Well, what do you think? 
what do you think, India? Should we file this charge or not? Well, he, he clearly did it, but, you know, is this really what we want as a community? You know, let's have that discussion. And then as a community, let's decide. So I, I think it's a perfect system. Okay. Um, when I, I know you're not a fan of talking about your opponent, but I do have one more question in that regard. Um, misdemeanor drug offenses. Uh, Luttrell has indicated he isn't in favor of prosecuting some misdemeanor drug offenses, primarily those involving possession of marijuana. Um, are you in favor of prosecuting those types of cases, and why or why not? I think it is dangerous uh, for somebody in my position to arbitrarily and unilaterally identify a category of crimes that they refuse to prosecute. I don't believe we have that authority. I don't believe that's the way our system is is meant to be. Um, you know, we have three branches of government. The legislature will decide based on the will of the people of the state of Kansas. And if if they want to change the law any time, they can do that. They can absolutely do that. And, and uh, my role as the prosecutor is to enforce the law that the people have decided. Uh, I don't believe, you know, we can use discretion in how we prosecute cases, and we absolutely do that. But I don't believe that discretion extends to the point where I can say, well, I just disagree with the legislature, so I'm going to ignore this section of the law. I think that's reckless. I think it's irresponsible. Um, and while we use discretion, uh, especially with um, those types of cases, you know, we to, to say it's a priority in my office would be a misstatement. It's just it's not a priority, but it is something that is the law. And when those cases are referred to us, we will enforce the law. Uh, and again, uh, you know, the people. I mean, they they could put that on the they could put that on the ballot and they could change it anytime. And then we guess what? We would stop enforcing it because it would no longer be the law in the state of Kansas. Uh, so that's my response to that. Um, you know, I'm the chief law enforcement official in Shawnee County, and my responsibility is to fairly and consistently uh, enforce the laws uh, that the state of Kansas has put in place. Okay. Um, and I, I want to talk about this idea of the progressive DA. Um, of course, you haven't been associated with the progressive DA movement, but you do consider yourself a proactive DA um, and have said that you are challenging some notions of traditional prosecution. Uh, where do you think the, the line is between being a proactive DA and being a progressive DA? In, in, in your mind, is there a difference or, and what is that difference? Well, that's a very interesting question. I, I don't pretend to know what somebody means when they say that they're a progressive DA. Um, I would say there's only one DA in this race uh, and that I have been very uh, proactive in my approach and very forward thinking in my approach and that I do as a matter of course, uh, both by myself and with my staff, challenge traditional notions of prosecution and what this should look like. I think I told you this last time, but uh, for a while, you know, at least for a few months when I took over, I kept hearing, well, this is the way we've always done it. And I, I told my staff, that is no longer an acceptable response. You have to be able to justify whatever we're doing and why we're doing it. And this is just the way it is, isn't, does not work for me. I want to talk about the policy reasons behind it. I want to talk about whether or not this is the best practice. That's what I want to hear. And that's what we strive for. Um, I know we talked about diversions last time. Um, 
my office does do more felony diversions than any other prosecution office in the state. Um, and I'm very proud of that. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk nationally about things like mass incarceration. And I understand on the national level that's a problem. And, and probably even uh, some places in the state of Kansas, there's a disproportionate number of people uh, who are being incarcerated. Uh, but that's not what the numbers tell us about Shawnee County. Uh, in fact, statewide, um, uh, felony convictions lead to probation 70% of the time. So that's a lot of opportunity for people to um, to better themselves, to to make you know uh, to make better decisions, and to use the resources that are available. In Shawnee County, that number is eighty percent. So we are ahead of the curve there in terms of giving people every possible opportunity they can uh, to improve themselves and to remain uh, law-abiding and, and to be productive members of society. Because that's that's the goal. You know, the goal is not to incarcerate people. The goal is not to, um, you know, just file cases and, and, and put people away. That's not what we do. That is part of what we do. But that is specific to people who are harming others uh, in, in significant ways, right? Um, we have uh, we've been very focused on violent crime, and uh, I think I shared this number with you last time. You know, I went back and looked at the average sentence for a murderer in Shawnee County during my time as DA, and it's been 46 years. You hear stories nationally about, well, you know, this person killed someone and they only got eight years or 10 years, whatever, five years. That doesn't happen in Shawnee County. Um, we prioritize those cases. And what that means is um, we charge them in a way that is consistent with the law. Uh, we have dedicated professional, competent prosecutors handling those cases. And uh, we make sure that the the victim's voice, and in the case of a homicide, the victim's family, that their voice is heard throughout that case, and that there are severe consequences uh, for committing the crime of, of murder or really any other serious violent crime, including uh, rape or uh, the sexual abuse of a child. You know, I think looking at those numbers, um, we've averaged 33 years. Uh, for a sentence. So is that part of what we do? Yes. But when you look at the numbers, um, that's maybe one out of five cases, right? So what does that tell you? Most of our cases, four out of five cases are going to end up in probation. And so we work uh, with the resources that we have available to us in Shawnee County. And we do have some significant resources here. I'd like to see more. And I know we've talked about that before. But we, we try and use those to help this person who made a bad decision to understand the consequences of their action, to treat the underlying cause that's driving their behavior. And sometimes they tell us, well, I don't, I don't know why I did what I did. But sometimes it's clear uh, that there's a drug addiction or they need behavioral therapy um, or they need some mental health services. That's, that's a large portion of, of that number. And so we work with uh, those resources and we work with those individuals in the courts to, to get them turned around. Because, again, the goal is not to put people in jail or put people in prison. Uh, so to say, you know, the mass incarceration issue, it really it may be a national conversation. It really is not applicable in Shawnee County. Okay. 
Um, and if elected to a second term, how would you increase your engagement with community members and local law enforcement to work toward a safer and more inclusive community? So I have created a position within my office called the Director of Community Engagement. I did this last year, and I hired someone who um, has a lot of uh, connection and credibility within the community, but also has some experience in working with our office. Uh, and we've been very successful through that program of uh, really bridging into um, different areas of the community and establishing uh, new relationships. I have worked hard as the DA to establish invest in and cultivate meaningful relationships throughout our community. I recognize that as the district attorney, uh, I am a voice for everyone uh, that, that lives here. And uh, I have that responsibility, and part of that is making myself available. And I have consistently done that uh, during my time as the DA. I have yet to receive an invitation uh, to speak anywhere in this community and decline that. Uh, I will go anywhere, anytime, if it's Shawnee County, I'm there. Um, I've been asked to speak in other places, and you know sometimes I've I've had to decline those because I prioritize you know our our, our home and our community, and that's my responsibility, and I and I'm I'm fine with that. But as far as uh, new relationships and investing in those, that's absolutely the priority. Um, I have a I believe an ethical duty to do that and to educate people and to answer their questions and to be transparent and try and help them understand not just what the system uh, does, but also what it doesn't do and maybe some ways that we can work collectively to improve it. And so I, I, I love those conversations. I'll continue to do that. And um, I look forward to doing that over the next four years. Gotcha. Um, well, Mike, that about wraps up our conversation here today. Do you have any other final thoughts for us? Um, anything else you would like the public to know? Uh, you know, I, I would just say that, uh, first of all, thank you again for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today and talk about these issues um, because they are uh, very important uh, to public safety. And it's important that the, the public hears uh, what we're doing uh, and, and has the opportunity to to make those decisions. Um, I have been overwhelmed by the positive feedback I'm getting from the community uh, as I go through this process. It's been very humbling, um, but also, again, very rewarding to know that, you know, you I've been doing this for almost four years now. We work very hard and we care very much about what we do. And uh, to hear that uh, that's being recognized right now in our community, um, it, it just, it feels very good and I'm very grateful for it. So, um, you know, we can talk about policy all you want, and that's important. Um, but you can pick up a book and you can look something up or call another office and adopt a new policy. What you can't do is adopt a new person. And the people that we have in the DA's office, the team that I have assembled, I would stack them up against any prosecution office in this state. Um, I feel very confident in saying that. Uh, they're dedicated they love the work that we do. They care about the community. Um, we actually have the best prosecutor in the state, according to the Association of Prosecutors. Um, in 2019, one of our deputies was nominated and, and recognized as Prosecutor of the Year. So uh, it's not just me saying, you know, we have a great team. People are recognizing the quality and the uh, professionalism uh, that our staff has. And so that's, that's very important to me too. Um, 
you know, I may be the leader of the office, but, um, you know, your, your team is only as good as, um, the people that are on it. And so I'm very grateful to my staff, uh, as well, uh, for the hard work that they've done. And, um, we really just, you know, <laughs> we enjoy working together and, uh, uh, we're, we're committed to the same goal. There's a, prosecutor who has been in the DA's office since 1968. Um, he is our unofficial office historian. <laughs> and so he's worked under every DA um, that we've ever had. And he is, uh, in his comments to me, he is struck by how how well uh, the offices run, how professional uh, the staff is and how much they clearly enjoy working together and how positive that environment is. He said that experience for him is, is unique. It's the best that he's seen in his time, and he would know. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being here with us. I've enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much, India. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more, you can support local journalism by subscribing to cgonline.com, reading our articles, and following the latest news on our social media platforms. You can also find more podcasts like this one in the Apple Podcasts app, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.